So, good morning. Rather cool and clear November morning. And uh, I put up some, there's an invitation for questions. And uh, at the time when I organised that, I didn't realise that Christina had done the same um, on Thursday. So it may seem like there's been a, a few questions recently and that. But um, there's a, a few more questions here that, I'd, uh, that I'll respond to. But I'd like to just begin by inviting or checking if there's any questions from um, that anyone would like to ask directly or live. Um, it doesn't mean you have to do it right away if you're not sure you want to, but uh, just to have some sense of how much time I should talk about different things. And so um, does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask directly in the hall? It's a scary moment. You. You don't have to, if you put your hand up, then actually ask a question. And if you don't put your hand up, you might still be able to. But okay, I'm just trying to get a sense of what's out there. And I know it maybe takes a moment, thanks, yeah, seen, to uh, just come through that sort of, uh, or come through what can sometimes be the, uh, the, the containment of one's retreat space and process into something that's a little more engaged. So, because I think it's actually kind of useful sometimes to hear what's alive in the moment. Um, first, uh, either of the two people who put their hand up have your question that you'd like to ask ready to ask? Yeah, well, please. Okay, so do people hear the question? Ask, um, River's asking about dependent origination. Is it the same thing as um, not self or emptiness of self? And is it the same thing as what some people call interbeing? And uh, it's a good question. Um, and they're very closely related. Um, I think there's different levels at which we can understand some of the territory of what really is the, the, the uh, profoundest dimension of the Buddha's teaching and that which, you know, in his own perspective and actually very much in the perspective of the, the practitioners and followers who have come, that, that really sets the Buddha's teaching apart, um, which is both the articulation of the, the Four Noble Truths um, and equally the articulation of dependent origination. The, uh, the way in which there's a process of causality and conditionality which underpins the arising of all phenomena. And so dependent origination has two particular, just say a little more, just as I go into it, has two particular ways we kind of work with it and understand it. One is the very specific model of the, the 12 links of dependent origination that the Buddha spoke about. And... Um, it involves basically the process whereby birth comes to take place. It really articulates that process and whether one sees it as a, um, 
as a process happening between from one lifetime to another or from one moment to another. It's the process whereby out of um, basically blindness and ignorance, patterns of reactivity lead to the emergence of a sense of an existent um, being that is entangled essentially with suffering and struggle and uh, could lay out the, the particularities of that, but just, just to name it, because if it's not something you're so familiar with, it's, it's perhaps useful to have that. And what it's actually pointing to is showing that the process of the way we arise as human beings is a conditioned process. Now, that, that particular explication of dependent origination through the 12 links um, is one way we talk about and use the, the language of dependent origination. The, the other is actually just the simple recognition of contingency, that all things arise dependent on conditions, no matter what they are, that nothing has its existence separate from or independent from those conditions that give rise to it. And so, you know, simple example often given, um, sitting here speaking right now, there's lots of conditions that support that that um, you know, basic ones would be the coming together of one's mother and father and the biological creative process that uh, without which you know, I nor you could be sitting here today. And we say, oh yeah, without that, this wouldn't be. And the way it's simply determined or described is when this, these conditions are present, this outcome. When these conditions are not present, not that outcome. Now, Emptiness of self in terms of a teaching, in terms of an understanding, is pointing to the way in which the, what we can recognise as the components of what we take ourselves to be are equally dependent and conditioned, arising out of processes that are neither the same as nor completely separate from that which they bring forth. And I think that's a really important way to, or useful way to understand it. We're not separate from the conditions, but nor are we the same as the conditions that we arise from or arise in. And so dependent origination is actually the underlying understanding or mechanism through which we can recognize the truth of the emptiness of self or the way in which self arises as a dependent, conditioned process. And so it's, again, the Buddha's teaching isn't saying there is no self. It's really important to get this because I've heard way too many Buddhists in my life try and, um, or not try, but successfully say, um, the Buddha says there's no self. And even, I don't have a self, as if that's the sort of the, the culmination of their Buddhist understanding. And it's actually not what the Buddha taught at all. He very clearly pointed to the problem with taking an identity based on the arising of this um, psychophysical process, but he equally said that if we try and create an identity somehow apart from that, we have the same problem. And so the Buddha actually said, people who argue about is there a self, is there not a self, or is there a world, is the world real, is the not world not real, that actually they've missed the point. And this was one of the really, I think, radical and beautiful elements of his teaching. That he said, actually, that whole argument doesn't make sense in the relationship to our experience. So emptiness of self is a way of understanding the nature of phenomena. Both um, the phenomena we call me, Yanai in this case, or you, um, or Gaia House, or 
this universe, in fact, likewise, are conditionally arising phenomena dependent upon many factors for its existence, for its sustaining, and ultimately as those factors change, it will dissolve. Um, and so <clears throat> in that, the, the process of seeing a conditionality rather than an absolute existent thing, or assuming because of that conditionality that there is nothing there. That those are actually the territory which very much the Buddha was pointing to when he referred to or talked about in the four great attachments. The third of them is the attachment to views and opinions. Beliefs about there is a self or there is not a self. There is a world or there is not a world. And what happens when we put that down is we're actually left in, a, in, a, in an open space. So um, this is the first piece, is that the understanding of conditionality, dependent origination as a, as a process, helps us to see that what we might take ourselves to be is actually a dynamic rather than a static. It's a dynamic process rather than a static event or particular thing that's somehow separate from other things or independent from other things that is somehow not reliant upon other things and in taking ourselves to be that there's uh, a considerable degree of suffering in the same way taking the world to be somehow absolute which we impute self inwardly we call it me and outwardly and we call it the world we make it into a something and likewise, seeing that that arises dependently, contingently, and is, is actually something fluid and profoundly um, dependent actually upon our perception, equally as upon the, the, the bare sensory data that we get, what we call the world, we can actually start to hold it more lightly, more softly. But if at the same time we go to say, oh, that means that it's not there, we fall into what's really kind of the emptiness trap. Um, and uh, there's a great line from Nagarjuna where he says, um, Buddhas teach, I'm trying to remember this correctly from Stephen Batchelor's translation, Buddhas teach the relinquishing of opinions. Those who believe in emptiness are incurable. Now, Buddhas teach emptiness and the relinquishing of opinions. Those who believe in emptiness are uncurable. And so, so emptiness of self is a understanding, or emptiness of phenomena, in fact, of which self is one, is an understanding based on dependent origination, on being able to see that, oh, certain conditions arise, and here we are. Certain conditions end, and we are not anymore. And uh, in terms of that, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha said, when asked specifically, you know, is there a self? Um, and there's, you know, clearly recorded passages from the teachings and the suttas where this happened, you know, and he remained silent. And so then the, the person asked him, Vachagotcha was this um, wandering ascetic. He asked the Buddha, is there a self? And the Buddha says, stay silent. And, uh, and he says, so is there not a self? And the Buddha stays silent. It's as if both a self and not a self. Is there neither a self nor not a self? They're the four ways you can ask the kind of question. Um, and the Buddha stayed silent. And afterwards his disciples said, well, why didn't you respond? He said, 
you can't respond to that question usefully. Because if you say, he asks, is there a self? If I say, yes, there is a self, then that flies in the face of seeing how things dissolve, how things fall apart, how they're dependent, but drop away. And if I say there's um, not a self, but that would contradict the fact that we see this arising. So the truth of arising, we can recognize, gives rise to the sense of existence or self. But the truth of dropping away, falling away, gives support to the perception and the understanding of actually, no, there's nothing there. Nothing permanent there. And what that means is that actually we can't land in either place. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why when the Buddha talked about impermanence, he said this is the elephant's footprint. This is the thing that encompasses all things in his teaching. That um, arising, which is an expression of impermanence, things that weren't there arise, including self, sense of me, this body, mind. And, you know, in terms of self, what we take to be self is form, this body, feelings, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral perceptions, the way we organize information to make some kind of sense. Formations, which is how we kind of um, establish patterns of behavior, of reacting, relating, engaging, and uh, most both unwholesome and wholesome things are sankharas. they actually things that are constructed. And then consciousness is the, uh, the fifth of the, uh, the aggregates that we tend to take to be self when we identify with them. And all of that is not to be taken as self. The Buddha points to this really clearly. Because we see that form arises because this body's here because, yeah, the, the sperm and the egg came together and then it grew and it had healthy conditions and food and warmth. And uh, feelings arise, sense of um, contact, contact with a sense door. And a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral arises. And so on for all the aspects of experience, we can see that they are arising dependent on conditions. So there's actually a very close relationship between dependent origination and emptiness of self, understanding that. But understanding it correctly is to see that um, it's not about negating in absolute terms or taking a position of absolute negating of existence, of beings, of, of what we call what this human existence or the existence of life. And that, that the Buddha pointed to is that that's actually the extreme of nihilism. Just as the extreme of reification is to say it's for real, the stream of nihilism is, or the, the, the tendency of nihilism is to say it's not real. And where does that leave us? Because there's somewhere between those two places, which is actually the resting place for the heart, where it's actually free from the tendency to need to land in one or the other extreme. And part of what, um, and where this, this goes on to the, the second part of the question, dependent origination and what's called interbeing, which is a, a word um, really that Thich Nhat Hanh came up with. I don't know if it's a specific translation to a term the Buddha used or not. Quite possibly is. But there's also often we, we talk about interconnectedness or the sense of a kind of way we can understand experience and life in which the non-separateness of individuality, of particularity, of 
of self, of me, of you, of another, we see that that in seeing through that appearance of separateness, of selfness, in that way, as so far as self is something separate, what we see is that there's something unified, there's something whole, and that actually all of existence, as again, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, inter is, because of the dependence on factors, which are dependent on factors, which are dependent on other factors, which eventually branch out to include everything. Everything actually only exists because of everything. And this might not quite make sense in one way of talking about it, because, you know, some things can exist, it seems, without everything else supporting them. But in another way, everything is actually connected with everything. And... Um, the very nature of thingness is, is at the heart of this. The very nature of thingness, which is where we extract something according to the mechanisms of perception that we have, which takes sensory information, and it's all vibration, it's all energy. There is no sensory experience we have that isn't dependent on energetic vibration in one form or another. And we organize and interpret that into me and experience, and then experience is happening to me, or me acting on things. And that, that sense of thingness is a misperception. It's at the heart. This is the key thing. The sense of thingness that gives a particular sense or particular aspect of experience or expression of phenomena some absolute independent separateness, which is what we call a thing, whether it's me or you or something else. When we see that that's not true, when we see that that's not actually how it is, the sense of life as a unified field becomes very clear. And it's actually in this understanding that the heart is released. It's in this understanding that it's actually through the taking away, the dropping, the dissolving of the perception of separateness, of disconnection, of, of individual, discrete entities or events as opposed to a continuum or flow in which there are particular manifestations, but those manifestations are all actually part of, not separate from, something that it's kind of hard to put a word on, but we could call it the Dharma, we could call it life, we could equally call it emptiness or fullness, and sometimes we do. So... That's kind of a whistle-stop survey of a whole range of responses to the question. Um, the key response, I would say, is that, yes, dependent origination is the underlying principle and process through which we understand and can see and directly experience what is talked about as emptiness of self or interbeing, interconnectedness, which are simply different sides of the same coin. When we look at phenomena from its particularity point of view, we're invited to see it as not having independent existence, to be not self, to be dependent on conditions, we see, not independent, therefore dependent and conditional. But when we step back from that, not stepping so far back from that, that we lose sight of what is actually the matrix of life, the framework of life. And 
in that there is a dependently arising process of existence, in a way, expressing its dynamic nature, of which we are one or some or a number of the expressions. So that was quite a lot. I didn't quite expect it to keep going that long, but it did. And so I just want to check if that led to another question, because it could easily have done for anyone, or if any of that didn't quite make sense or didn't quite follow through, because um, that would be quite easy for that to be the experience, I imagine. Well, um, dependent origination or conditional arising is the way we. And that's actually one of the metaphors that's most commonly employed to try and articulate some of the territory, the idea of a wave, and that um, a wave looks like a thing, but it's not. Just to say, with the, the sort of the, the relatively commonly familiar understanding of cause and effect, it tends to be a much more simplified version of the understanding in terms of thinking this event causes that outcome, rather than saying actually there are a multiplicity of causes. If you said causes and effects, I think that would be closer. Just because sometimes we think, oh, um, I did this and therefore that happened, cause and effect. And it's way more complicated than that. Hmm? But yes, you're on the right track there. Yeah, good. So that's a juicy one to start with. Um, thank you. Maybe Lynn, you said you had a question. If, is it still there for you? Um, yeah, there's been been quite here all week. Mm. Okay, so I think that's a translation from, I use it myself, that phrase, I use um, that language and it's the, you know, the, the first translations into English that we had access to were made by Victorian English people and they use sometimes archaic words, some of which have been, um, you know, have become sort of established as the words we understand the Dharma in terms of and they're not always useful. This one I actually quite like, fathom is six foot. It's an old measurement. They used to measure, primarily you heard it used for depth, but sometimes for length as well. 
but it's particularly a depth measurement. So in the sea, you would talk, isn't there that Jules Verne, 40,000 fathoms beneath the sea? Sorry? Leagues. Oh, okay, no, that's leagues. Okay. There we are. No, no. Well, that's another... Oh, it's Okay, so fathoms and leagues are in the same series of measurements, in the same way feet and yards or metres and kilometres are. Fathoms and leagues are that part of that same body of kind of medieval measurement, which isn't really employed that much in common language, but it just means six feet, approximately. And I guess the Buddha used a word that involved some measurement that was approximately the height of a... Well, that's slightly taller than average, I guess, human being. But with regard to that teaching, you know, where the Buddha said, and I'm guessing this is what you've heard, within this fathom-long body, all of the Dharma is revealed. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the truth of suffering and its cause, the path of liberation and its, you know, manifestation, all of this is realised to be known in here, revealed and to be realised in and through the body. So, uh, yeah, it's nothing too esoteric in that regard. It's just. I was going to say, I thought, I thought that a fathom <coughs> was like, um, much greater, and I thought it was kind of that that contains the whole sun. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's how he's using it in that situation. And actually, interesting. Like it is, but it does have what it, what's interesting is it does indicate a sense of depth, I think, because it's mostly I think used to measure you know distance from the depth of a well or the depth of a body of water, and we have that particular um expression unfathomable it's like it's something beyond what you can actually find the bottom of is what that comes from um, but it's yeah, it's interesting that actually we don't need to explore the vast reaches of the universe in order to know what the Buddha was teaching. That actually right here, in this experience, in this body, and that body, and that body, that body, each of our body, this actually offers us the raw material that we need for understanding. And... Uh, And I think that's rather remarkable, actually. So, good. Thank you. Hmm. So, was there anything else anyone had or was found arising for them that they wanted to ask live before I pick up the written questions here? So there's a couple of questions here about what's really daily life concerns, which are genuine and real and important. And for me, it seems like the most useful thing in the time here. I'll, I'll, I'll respond to them, but I just want to name that that actually for this time of the retreat, and we're here, um, you know, one week into two weeks or 
just over, or three weeks out of four weeks into our retreat, um, to really give oneself the permission to put down, just for this time, the concerns that might tend to be to do with what we need to address or resolve in our lives. To really give oneself very fully and wholeheartedly as a mark of respect for one's life, not as a rejection of it, as a mark of respect for one's life, to give oneself to the life that's here in this retreat, in this time, in what we're with. And if in that there are questions that arise, and there's one here, is it really possible ever to make right, unconditioned decisions in such a busy daily life, when here on retreat it seems all so different? There are so many moments that one is never aware of during a householder's day. Well, there's probably a few moments one isn't aware of during a meditator's day. I don't know if anyone else has had a different experience to that, but there's actually probably quite a few moments one's not aware of here. And um, in terms of making right or unconditioned decisions, I think that's really an interesting idea. We often have this idea that we should make right decisions. And if we took it back to what's going on, even the decision, shall I... Sit for 30 minutes, 50 minutes, one hour? Should I just get up and go for a cup of tea when I feel like it? In a way, those are all decisions. Shall I do some walking now? Shall I do some standing? Shall I go and stand in the sun? Shall I stand in the frosty bit? Shall I go to the walking room? Lots of decisions, you know, and probably lots of moments where we could be wondering what's the right decision or what would be an unconditioned decision. So the nature of decisions is that by the very fact that we're making a decision, they're not going to produce perfect outcomes. There's going to be some kind of mixture of pros and cons, benefits and losses, advantages and disadvantages that arise in any decision-making process, because otherwise we don't call it a decision. We just do it. It just happens. Boom. We notice what's the direction to go, and we go there. Um, so, right is a kind of an unhelpful term to bring, I think. What's useful to ask is what might be beneficial or wholesome here? And then sometimes we have to try it out and see. Um, in terms of being unconditioned, now there's no such thing as a, an unconditioned thing, including decisions. That follows on from what I said before, at least I hope it does. Or Maybe I didn't make a lot of sense with some of it. but. Um, even making decisions, we see that we're dependent on a certain limited amount of information. And then we have to look and see what is actually moving or motivating me. And the key thing for making decisions that are as free and as beneficial as possible, I think, is reflecting on which of my motivations for the factors that I'm emphasizing in making the decision, because in a decision you have to look and see, okay, what is it that's most important to me? And which of these options will appear to give me the greatest balance of what is important and the least balance of that which is either unimportant or which I regard as undesired or problematic? And seeing of those things I'm choosing, like if I'm saying, what am I going to wear today? And I think, okay, I'll wear this because it's quite warm and it's cold out, so I'll wear it. And it's actually, it's really nice. I like this top. People will think I'm looking good today if I wear it, okay? Now you can see, but actually I'll look better if I wear that really nice top that's really lightweight, but it's, it's gorgeous. I love it. People will think I'm really looking good if I wear that. You know, we can see where the decision-making process is going. It's towards a bit of self-image, hope for a bit of 
you know, sort of reinforcement, appreciation from others, or just in our own mind, because no one's actually going to tell me that. Um, and we might actually go out the door in something that's actually not warm enough. Or the choice might be, oh, well, I've got a really warm jacket, but it doesn't look that good. Now, I'm making it kind of a little bit, mostly we're going to be dealing with more subtle challenges here. But if I make the decision to say, oh, actually, I could wear that really um, unpleasant looking jacket that keeps me really warm, we see, okay, what other factors and issues in this that I want to support? Oh, well, actually, taking care of my need to stay warm is important. I want to support that. I don't want to get cold. It's not good for my health or my well-being. But reinforcing a tendency to want to look good, now that actually just amplifies a sense of sort of needy, egoic sort of looking for attention or approval. And that's actually really painful. So I don't want to make a decision based too much on that. Now there might be a middle ground here which says in order to turn up and do this particular job or be in this role, it's sort of important to be relatively tidy because it's just paying respect to what's happening. And I think that's a valid thing. It's paying respect to something that we value, that we love. So, you know, I probably wouldn't turn up in a, in a, a really warm jacket that I'd just been, um, you know, digging the garden in or, or working on my car in that was covered with, you know, mud and oil. It just wouldn't feel right. But it's not so much about an image, but about what's respectful. But in terms of wholesome decisions or useful decisions, looking to see what am I giving weight to in the decision that feels like it is arising from something that's essentially coming out of, out of kindness and wisdom or out of, that isn't coming so much out of greed or out of hatred or out of delusion. And the key delusion, of course, is that whole process around which we try and create a sense of me based on the arising content of experience. Um, which in that case would be, well, if people tell me my clothes look good, then I'll feel good about myself and I'll be a good version of me which is what we'd quite like to be from a self point of view. But that's not a great reason to make the decision. So making wholesome decisions, I may have a, I've said this again, but then I keep diver diverging into a, something of an illustration. Making good decisions is about being as conscious and aware as we can, which will be imperfect, inevitably. First noble truth applies. Things are not perfectly going to align themselves, including our own self-awareness. But so far as we can, seeing Oh, what is actually wholesome in my decision, in, in the things that I'm trying to bring forth through this decision process? And so within that, knowing that, of course, the outcome will not be perfect. We won't get an absolutely perfect result. And we'll never know what the other version would have been like. That's one of the really interesting things with decisions. We'll never know what it would be like if we did the other thing. We'll only know what happens if we chose this path. And we can look at it and see what was useful and what wasn't. And that's what we learn from it, what was useful and what wasn't. And we might, on another occasion, try the other direction and see what that does, what that offers, what's useful and what's not. Now, I've just seen it's quarter past ten, and I think... There may or may not be someone in here who has an interview with Christina at quarter past ten. And I'm not finished yet, so I'm going to take the next 15 minutes, which I allocated to myself at least, without telling anyone an hour for the session. If you have an interview with Christina at this time, I'd encourage you to attend it. Um, but it's up to you in the end, but I think that would be the respectful thing to do. But maybe that person's not here, and it's not... Okay, someone's got one at half past. That's fine. We should be done by then.
Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's right. I'm not going to keep you here all morning. <laughs> My intention was to be here till 10.30. <laughs> that's okay. That's the normal, what we, we schedule for, what I schedule for one of these slides. So while you're here, whoever this question is, um, is asking this question, just uh, notice when you can and when you can't be aware, just as in your daily life. But for here, maybe notice what of the realm of decision-making that's relevant to what's actually happening here, not decisions for your life and in the future. Notice what of that is happening here and start to become interested in that process for yourself because we can learn a lot from watching how we engage and what we invest in the decisions. And so it is possible to make skillful decisions in a, in a sometimes busy life. It's different than perfect. And uh, it's a kind of a learning and a skill. So here's someone expressing, I've been feeling a lot of pain about being out of touch with my niece for five years. She does not answer any of my messages. I know that she is not well. What can be done? So... It can be really hard for us when there's someone in our life that we care for that's, who's in a difficult place. And it can equally be hard for us when someone who we care for or are connected to in our life has become distant from our life, for whom we're not having contact with. In terms of what can be done, I'd like to respond to it again, not in terms of the worldly circumstance of what could be done, of which actually there are probably many things, and I'm not sure that I'm necessarily the expert on them. Um, but in terms of what can be done here, oh, okay, to notice that there's actually some pain. To see what is it like to just turn towards the pain, to open to the pain, to ask ourselves, how do I hold this? Because it may not be that different a process from making connection with someone in our life who we find there is pain around, whether the pain of their condition or the pain of our disconnection from them. And the experience of pain in one's heart, of that which is painful, oh, what is it to make a relationship with this? Because the truth is, if we can make a relationship with the pain that arises in our experience, in our heart, around difficult relationships and circumstances and the situations of people, if we can make space for that, if we can make a relationship with it of kindness, of care, of compassion, that will be the foundation for establishing relationships and responding skillfully in the world to others. Because, because that's actually often what makes it hard for us in the world. Someone that we're in contact with, we experience pain arising in relationship to them or in relationship to not being in contact with them. And yet the pain that's happening here isn't their pain. It's ours. And we need to own that. We need to understand, oh, we might be feeling pain, we think, on their behalf, but the pain that we are feeling is ours. And there may be something beautiful, compassionate and lovely in our concern, but there can also sometimes be the wish to resolve their situation so that we don't have to feel that pain. And that actually doesn't generally work that well at all. So, so actually bringing compassion and kindness to one's own pain 
in the reality of the situation. It's not guaranteed that there will be reconciliation with loved ones we're distant from, because it's not up to us. Relationship involves other people who may have their own agendas, will certainly have their own challenges and limitations. And one of the really, I think, important learnings in, in life and in practice is that, you know, it doesn't always work out. It doesn't work out the way we would like it to. But we can establish our heart in an orientation towards that which we feel or know through our experience is actually most useful, most wholesome. And here, a sense of caring for both the pain we feel in our heart and it might be that one would wish to do some loving kindness for this person, to extend a sense of well-wishing towards this person. But it might equally be important to do it with and for oneself so far as one's own pain in this relationship or in this experience is present. And really important to be kindly with oneself in such situations. It's easy to feel that somehow we should be able to overcome, resolve or transform the circumstance. But uh, without the cooperation of other people and their motivation and interest for that to happen, we can't do it by ourselves. And sometimes that's just not what's there. And again, important to really have compassion for oneself in that situation. It's like, oh, that's really hard. If someone I care about is not willing to engage with me. That's really hard. But rather than trying to work out how to make that engagement happen, it's actually healing at the inner level how that is for me, or working with the healing and transformation of that, actually takes the pressure out of the situation because then one is no longer doing it or needing to do it, partly because we care for and want to connect with, which is beautiful and lovely, but partly because actually we just don't want to have the painful experience, which is totally understandable, but isn't necessarily so useful in that dynamic. So the last uh, written question here. Why do we keep manifesting the same things, brackets, objects, close bracket, countries, etc., over and over again when essentially everything is emptiness? Question mark. Fear? Question mark. Clinging? Question mark. You got it. Fear and clinging. That's why we do it. Yep. Um, but it's a little more complicated than that. Um, why do we keep manifesting? Now there's an interesting idea, isn't it? We manifesting? So part of how we tend to think in terms of, well, it's all being done to me, or I'm making it happen. Those, again, two extremes that the Buddha pointed to. One is kind of determinism, it's all just being done to me, I've got no choice, and the other is free will. Well, I keep making it happen. Look, it must be that I really want this to be happening because I'm making these things happen, whether they be experiences or... Um, sort of objects. 
I mean, countries don't manifest or happen. They exist purely in human minds. They have no other existence. Countries. It's just, just an idea. It's really just an idea. Same way Guy House is just an idea. Of course, there are conditions and circumstances that we've put that label on, but it's just an idea. Yanai is another one of those ideas. It's just a label we put on on this particular expression of life presenting in a particular way. It doesn't mean that if we take the label off, it's not here. Um, but the idea that I'm manifesting it or you're manifesting it, that's a really interesting one. And yet sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes it feels like, but well, I keep running into the same kinds of things. What's going on? And... So first of all, this idea that we keep manifesting, as if we keep manifesting, as if we're doing it somehow. Interesting, isn't it? And then we say when every, if essentially everything is emptiness. Now, when, if we say everything is emptiness, it's again, we're positing emptiness as if emptiness is the fundamental reality or somethingness of things. Like if we say everything is real or everything is unreal, and then we have another word which says everything is emptiness. Emptiness is the nature of things. It's not the things. And the things aren't it. So the very fact of emptiness, which is basically founded on the dependently arising nature of phenomena, that understanding, they go together, it's precisely because of that that when the conditions are the same, we keep manifesting the same things, or the same things, to use your language, for the question, which is okay language. Um, or what we could say is, if the conditions are the same or similar, similar things will manifest. And two of the key conditions are fear or aversion, negativity, or clinging, craving, greed, attachment. These conditions, so long as these tendencies are there in the mind, so long as the latent tendency towards aversion and the latent tendency towards grasping are unaddressed or are still operative in the heart and mind and the consciousness, then we will constantly encounter objects of craving, clinging, and objects of fear and aversion. And they may well have a kind of pattern to them. One of the most annoying, frustrating, and remarkable things about life is that it keeps putting us back into the places where we have something to learn until we learn whatever it is we need to learn there. And despite the fact that we might have been there quite a few times and think we've learnt all we need to learn in this place, the reality is that it's often we need to learn a little bit more. And somehow, and this has got to be one of the most amazing things about this universe, it finds a way to get us into those places, kicking and screaming, certainly if we're talking about me, kicking and screaming some of the time, when we do not want to go back into the place where we have to learn something. But precisely, and this is how the mechanism works, this is actually the underlying mechanism of karma that operates. When there is some element of blindness and, or distortion in the way we're seeing the world and responding to it, we cannot but help walk ourselves into the situations where that will be revealed to us, or where, where we'll actually hit up against 
the suffering inherent in that particular misperception. Taking, you know, a broad, simple one, the fact that, um, let's say, you know, uh, if we believe, and we probably all at times in some degree believe that, um, you know, I could get satisfaction from a thing. Um, and we keep trying to get things, and we're going to keep learning the lesson about they can't give us lasting satisfaction. Such a classic Dharma lesson. We get to learn it a lot of times. Now, we might get to learn it about very particular kinds of things in terms of relationships, in terms of clothes, in terms of um, retreats. You know, we can't get absolute perfect satisfaction from a retreat, even from the Dharma or the teachings or teachers or things that we might for some time perhaps imagine that we might. So we have to learn lessons about that. Now, easily we make people like teachers, I think I probably did, into the hoped-for version of what would have been perfect parents. And we find out that just as parents weren't perfect, neither are or were teachers. But they're doing their best, mostly, um, within their own limits and capacities. So I think it's really an interesting thing to contemplate. Oh, if I keep ending up in the same place, there might be a reason for this. And that doesn't mean we need to judge yourself, whether it's a place in practice or a place in our lives. Not to judge oneself, but to be really interested. What do I need to learn here? What might I yet have more to learn about here? Because you might have done some really good learning, but there might be just a little bit more that's still being called for. There's a poem I often um, recite at the end of retreats which speaks to this. Um, and... Uh, I think I'm going to do it, even though we're going to run just over 10.30. But I think uh, the person who had an interview at 10.30 is already gone. And I've got the other interview at 10.30, so it won't start without me. And it's by Portia Nelson. It's called An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Chapter 1. I walk down the street. I'll translate to English because it says sidewalk. But there is a hole in the pavement. I don't see it. I don't know it's there. I fall in. I don't know what has happened or where I am. It takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a large hole in the pavement. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in. I don't know where I am or what has happened. And it takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a large hole in the pavement. I see it. I know it's there. I've fallen anyway. It's a habit. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a large hole in the pavement. I walk carefully around it and continue on my way. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. And I imagine somewhere along the line, this is that, that was the end of the poem, but I imagine somewhere along the line one discovers there's something on that street one needs to take care of, whether it's a hole or a, an obstacle or a, a lot of traffic, who knows. But we find ourselves, and we could say, how do I keep manifesting this world where there's a large hole in the street? 
Or we could say, oh, there's something to learn about the nature of such holes. And actually there's something remarkably compassionate. Although at times really it seems quite painful. There's something remarkably compassionate about the process of life which keeps bringing us into contact with those places in ourselves or those places in the world where we are actually called to grow, to learn and to wake up. So I think that's where I'll finish for this morning. Um, thank you for the questions, for the, for the listening, for your practice. And uh, I meant to say at the beginning, I may or may not manage to answer your questions. I will endeavour to respond to them. And so I hope the responses were useful. And uh, if there's anything that felt either unanswered or unresolved or stirred up by what was expressed here, um, please feel free to you know, bring that to a one-to-one -one with whoever you're seeing and uh, just seek any clarification or further um, input. So for now, um, there are some interviews and the opportunity for practice and uh, I invite you to, uh, if you haven't already, enjoy the, the, the sunshine and the, the brisk morning air. It's rather lovely out there. And uh, my blessings for your practice. <laughs>